0: Welcome to the Impact Nations Podcast, Episode 22, Glorified Times 5. Did Jesus give Judas a final appeal to change his mind? Can we change our hearts on our own? How did Jesus reveal the glory of the Father? Steve answers these questions and more in this week's study of John, Chapter 13.
1: Last week We talked, do you remember we talked about the kind of the rising sense of conflict, light and dark? John continues to increase the conflict uh, here between the light and the darkness, uh, and he really heightens uh, he heightens the impact by moving straight into the betrayal directly, in fact, even within the same paragraph, if your Bible's in paragraphs. Um, after this incredible scene of, of serving and love and commitment, and he's, he's straight in. So we're going to start at verse uh, 18. That's John 13, verse 18. I'm not speaking about all of you. I know those I have chosen. But the scripture must be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. He. I assure you, the one who receives uh, whomever I send receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. So, as I said, he moves directly from the prophetic act of foot washing, and we talked about how that's connected to the cross and and his emptying, and that he moves directly into a prediction or a prophecy uh, of his betrayal. And uh, when he says the one who who uh, raised his um, heel against me, he's quoting Psalm 41.9, and uh, that was an expression that means to betray or to turn against someone. The context I keep coming back to this: the setting and the context is so important with with, with all of Scripture, but I see it so much in John, especially I think. Um, So the context is powerful. Jesus knew what Judas was about to do. And yet, Jesus humbled himself and descended down below, beneath Judas and washed his feet. And I think this adds to the power of verse 15 that we talked about last week, uh, which he says, I have given you an example that you also should do just as I've done for you. We're going to come back to that later. Now... His prophecy, he says, this is going to happen, and I'm telling you, um, (coughs) before it happens, so that, (coughs) pardon me, when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. So the prophecy serves to increase your faith. In fact, many of us know that the revelatory gifts, prophecy, words of knowledge, words of wisdom, um, they always seem to be used by the Lord to increase people's faith. Mm-hmm. Our faith, the one receiving it. Mm-hmm. And that's what Jesus did. I want you to notice something, because it's, it's good old John. It goes all the way back to the prologue. Uh, he says, I'm telling you so that when it does happen, you'll believe that I am He, your Bible says. However, literally, he says, so that you will know I am. So we're right back to Exodus 3, Who do I say sent me? Tell them I am. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Remember John 8, I think about 53? (coughs) So he never, he never leaves this theme through the whole gospel of the complete uh, intrinsic unity between the Father and the Son. And he says, I assure you, the one uh, who receives whomever I send receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. Now it was really interesting. If any of you want to look up uh, newlifecity dot org, because uh, Pastor Allen spoke on the whole thing about uh, receiving and receiving the prophet's reward. If you receive the one he sent. Um, and of course, neither he nor I knew what each other was preparing. So I thought that was interesting. But, but John is building here on the theme of unity that we have with the Father because we have unity with the Son. The one who, <coughs> Jesus says this, <coughs> excuse me, in different places, if you, if you receive me, you receive the Father, he says earlier in John. The theme develops and develops, and we're really going to get into it in John 14. In fact, one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible is 1420. I'm in the Father, you're in me, I'm in you. It's this incredible unity. Remember we talked about the Trinity a little while ago, and we talked about the word parachorosis, which means this, this intermingling, this activity, what, what the Church Fathers called the divine dance. And this goes right back to that, that same principle. That that we we are interconnected with Christ and therefore with the Father and so when people receive they don't they, whether they realize it or not they are receiving Christ they are receiving the Father okay um, now let's go to a long passage verse twenty one to thirty when Jesus had said this he was troubled in his spirit and he testified I assure you one of you will betray me. The disciples started looking at one another, uncertain which one he was speaking about. One of his disciples, the one who Jesus loved, was reclining close beside Jesus. And Simon Peter motioned to him to find out who it was that Jesus was talking about. So he leaned back against Jesus and asked him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus replied, he's the one I give the piece of bread to after I have dipped it. When he had dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. (coughs) Pardon me. After Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Therefore, Jesus told him, what you're doing, do quickly. None of those reclining at the table knew why he told him this. Since Judas kept the money bag, some thought that Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the festival, or that he should give something to the poor. After receiving the piece of bread he went out immediately and it was night. <sighs> Let's just start to take this apart a little bit. Go back to the beginning, verse 21. He was troubled in his spirit. We saw this in John eleven thirty-three. Remember when Lazarus died and he went and he saw his, his sisters weeping and he was troubled in his spirit. John wants us to see that although Jesus is fully aware, we're going to see this over the next few minutes, he was so aware of what was happening. It it, it was just the fulfillment of, of prophetic, he knew what was happening. But, and so he was in control, but that doesn't mean he was emotionally and spiritually detached by what was happening. He was troubled, it hurt him, even though he knew what was going on. And this gets us back to what John won't ever let us get away from. The humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ. Fully God, fully man. And I've shared with you at length earlier in this series the historical challenges, especially in the first 400 years of the church, to hold this truth in tension that he's fully God and fully man. But John never lets it go. It's all the way... Uh, It undergirds everything he writes. And as I've said again, uh, many times, there are so many levels of meaning in John and that he doesn't waste a word. Everything is very purposeful. Let's look at 22 to 25. (coughs) Pardon me. (coughs) One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, was reclining close beside Jesus. Simon Peter motioned to him to find out who it was he was talking about. And he leaned back against Jesus and asked him, Lord, who is it? This is one of the most famous images in all of the gospel. You hear people preaching on this and leaning on the breast. Uh, did you know that the actual literal word means womb? Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, we've got uh, Da Vinci's Last Supper. We've got so many examples of this scene. John leaning into Jesus. And what we have is this John. You know, John is, he he operates at so many levels. There's just an incredible revelation and brilliance there. And one of those levels is he's a wonderful dramatist. He knows how to tell the story in a way that we, we enter in. We become part of it. And, uh, This passage has always been, chapter 13 has always been so vivid to me, dramatically. (coughs) (coughs) And he creates this dynamic tension that was starting to grow, we talked about last week, and now it's increasing. There's this tension of incredible intimacy. The only time we ever hear about one of the disciples actually laying his head on his chest. Incredible intimacy And at the same time, we're becoming aware that there's total betrayal in the room, and they're both happening at the same time. Um, The disciples are not understanding what he's saying. It's interesting, in Matthew's account, each one of the disciples' immediate response is to wonder, does Jesus mean me? Am I the one who's betraying him? Isn't that interesting? When he had dipped the bread... And some of your older versions say it dipped in the sock. It's in the, you know, like the gravy. When he dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas. You probably know this, but in case you don't, in Jewish culture, to to dip the bread and give it to you was uh, a great honor and a great expression of, of deep friendship and intimacy. So he, he didn't just kind of pick it as some token thing. Well, you know, who, I'll flip the coin in that direction. This, this had so much meaning. And he gave it to him. So I don't know the answer to this, but I do know the question that I've been thinking about for two days. Jesus knew. We go all the way back to John 6, a year earlier. Jesus knew what was going on with Judas. And he knew where it was headed. And yet, he gave him this bread. So my question for myself, by extension for us, is it possible then in this context that Jesus gave the bread to Judas as a final appeal? Was it a final appeal to him? Because he felt deeply, right? He wasn't just going through the motions. Mm -hmm. So this opens up a great paradox to me. I was having a discussion with somebody today on the phone about this. Um, Jesus knew prophetically what Judas was going to do. But God also doesn't violate our free will. He never violates our free will. So, was this a final and hopeful gesture? And we live with this dynamic tension. I think that, that God knows, but he also allows for there to be change. It allows us, that's that's a, you know, I'm getting into something called open theism, but it, but it at the heart of it is, a loving God has to give free will to his creation, to the universe. Because love requires free will, right? Mm-hmm. If I if I require, Jerry, we work together, you have to love me. You have to respect me. You have to whatever. But it's, it, there's it's not possible. It's got to be free will. So this just, I've been thinking about this for a couple of days. Because I don't think he was just doing that, oh, well, this is just to move things along. It was this incredible appeal, I think, perhaps. Okay? But Steve, Judas didn't betray him, someone would have had to for it to be completed, right? I think probably. I mean, Jesus had to be crucified for it to be
0: finished. Yes,
1: yes. And he had to be betrayed one way or another. And And I'm not saying he didn't know that Judas... I'm saying there's this paradox, this incredible paradox in creation that God knows, but there's still free will. So that gets into a whole huge theological issue, again, called open theism. But um, I was just, (coughs) without getting into big open theism, I was just wondering about the significance of that. It seemed like it had so much love in it and so much appeal in it. So then, verse 27, (coughs) pardon me, after Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Therefore, Jesus told him, what you're doing, do quickly. Now we looked last week at the beginning of this chapter, verse 2, which says the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. And now, he says, Satan entered him. By the way, it's the only time uh, John uses the word Satan, or the name Satan in his whole gospel. That's just a freebie. It's got nothing to do with anything. I just thought I'd tell you. Um, so here's what I think it shows us from verse 2 now to verse 27. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. First, Satan put the idea into Judas' mind as a possibility to be considered. Now, Satan entered into Judas because he's the accuser. So I want to just look a little bit at the context for what Judas has decided to do. One year earlier, because this is our third Passover, one year earlier, in John 6, 70, Jesus said, did I, not, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. That's a year earlier. Think of all that happened in a year. Jesus kept loving Judas for a year, even though his heart had turned away from Jesus. I find that amazing. That's an amazing capacity. Remember, just a little bit earlier in John 12 that, that Mary and Bethany, she, she anointed him for a burial. She, remember that? The fragrance? <clears throat> and Judas got really angry. What a waste. This could have been you know, sold and given to the poor or whatever. Well, even John says it's not because he really cared about the poor. But I wonder this was when he saw Mary at the feet of Jesus pouring out this fragrance, is he angry because of the waste, which is what he said, or is he angry and jealous of Mary's intimacy with Jesus because it's an intimacy he just didn't have? I think I pointed out to you before, if you look in various places, Matthew 26 is my favorite example you'll see in the Last Supper, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? And, and Judas says, surely not I, Rabbi. Mm-hmm. And when he kisses him, he says, hail, Rabbi. Um. He never was, and I think, I think perhaps that's where this came from. Mm-hmm. Here's the other thing I've been thinking about for two days. For a year, his heart is sliding, right? Mm-hmm. It's getting harder. And uh, I've been thinking about how hard it is, how difficult it is. Once our hearts begin to turn away from someone, to truly reverse that. Mm. We can give them a the bit of the doubt. Oh, you know, their, their, our hearts are turning a little bit away from somebody, and they do something good. Oh, well, that's not so bad. But, but, but that's not what I'm talking about. It's because you know, the next time something bothers it, just how hard it is to stop that movement mm-hmm. of our heart away from someone. Mm-hmm. And that—that's the thing that hit me the hardest in this whole betrayal thing, because mm-hmm. I recognize it in my own heart. I recognize that with some people I just see the best you know no matter what I just just assume the best I see the best and other people though I don't want it to be so my heart is drifting away from them and it's I don't see the best I instinctively see the worst or see that they messed up or I don't assume the best So that's what just hit me because a whole year Judas has been sliding in the midst of miracles and, you know, 5,000 being fed and uh, the blind seeing and Lazarus raised and yet his heart is sliding. I don't have an answer for that question, but I sure have a question that's been going off in me for the last couple of days. Judas' acceptance of the bread without changing his plan, means that he is chosen for Satan rather than Jesus. There's a choice in that. Verse 2, to reinforce what I said, tells us that betrayal was an idea, a possibility that was planted in his mind. But when Judas chooses betrayal and acts upon it, this is the final opening of himself, the powers of darkness. The powers are now using Judas um, to attack Jesus by bringing a charge against him. They're using him. He is a tool in their hand. He's a pawn on their chessboard. So, I want you to notice that John has prepared us for this all the way through his gospel. Going all the way back to the prologue, um, that, that there's darkness and yet the light shines in it. Light and darkness are going to be in conflict. He tells us in different ways, but it goes all the way back to verse 5 of the first chapter. This underlying conflict has been there from the beginning. So then Jesus looks at him, and I think with tears in his voice, but for who of us can know for sure. He says, what you're doing, do it quickly. Jesus knew that Judas had made his final choice. He knew there was no delaying this final confrontation between light and darkness. And Judas only leaves after Jesus has told him to leave. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't just get up and walk out. Jesus says, go do what you're going to do. John is stressing that Jesus is in control of his destiny. And I take us back to John 10, 18... Where Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. With this betrayal and Satan entering Judas, the hour of darkness has come. Again, we've got many warnings of this. For example, uh, John 9, 4, Jesus warned that the night is coming. All the way back to John 3.19. This then is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. So once again, verse 30, he goes out. It has more than one level of meaning. It says, and Judas went out immediately and it was night. Judas has now turned his back on the light. He's gone into the darkness. Okay? So again, I I just continue to tell us all to be watching context, be watching setting, and be looking for levels of meaning which are often metaphorical and symbolic. Um, In John 12, 35, Jesus had said, the one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. What he's saying is, he's, he's, Caught in spiritual blindness. And we are seeing Judas caught in spiritual blindness. So that's the betrayal. And uh, if I could just (coughs) go back to this thing and and say it one more time and then I'm going to move on to the second section. We need to think about how hard it is once our hearts begin to turn away from someone. To truly reverse that. I suspect that is that's a place of great repentance. That's a place I'm going to get to at the end of this next section of recognizing our own weakness. That's a place of crying out for the power of God. Because I'm not that convinced we can change our hearts on our own. Mm -hmm.
0: This week's episode is brought to you by Our Journey to India. Each year, Impact Nations partners with our friend Randeep as he and his amazing team seek to break new ground in northern India. Every year, Randeep brings us to villages where no one has ever heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Before we arrive, a team has scouted the region, prayed through towns, and identified a man of peace in the community. Then we go into those villages and demonstrate the gospel through medical clinics, water filter distribution, and healing the sick in Jesus' name. And every year, churches spring up as a result of our journey of compassion. Hundreds of churches have been started in recent years as the gospel has radically changed lives. How do you like to say that you were there when the gospel came and changed a village? Join us February 10th to the 22nd. Register today at impactnations.com slash India. And now, back to the podcast.
1: I want to talk now about a, the introduction of a whole section that is, is called the Farewell Discourse. And it's this final... Monologue, mainly monologue, uh, not exclusively, but mainly monologue that Jesus has with <coughs> now the 11. And uh, it begins at the point where Judas leaves the room. Jesus is now unhindered by the darkness that Judas carried. And uh, I think we need to remember that even Jesus is affected by spiritual atmosphere. Remember uh, Mark 6, he could, he could do... No miracles, just a few healings. Because of the atmosphere. As some of you who've traveled with me know why it's so important we, we go out in with intercessors and we pray through a village, especially if we're going in for the first time, because sometimes we're hit with incredible darkness, incredible unbelief. Um, and uh, and so, I just want us to be aware that, that even Jesus was affected by this, because you see the immediate shift at verse 31. As soon as Judas, who is so controlled by the powers of darkness, is gone. There's like a momentum that immediately starts. Jesus moves forward in a long, sustained outpouring of the essential and deep things of his heart. He knows what's happening, what's going to be just a few hours from now. And this is his final time to pour out. Now, the thing about the scriptures... Is that, and especially I see it in, in, you know, in the New Testament, is that the, the chapter divisions were made, you know, four hundred years after the Bible was written, and sometimes they're really in awkward places. And and almost all of us, we tend to think of chapter, you know, so we read a chapter at a time. But <coughs> really, where we're going into now, uh, thirteen verse thirty-one and following goes all the way through to the end of chapter 16, and some would say the end of chapter 17. Chapter 17 is Jesus' prayer, called the priestly prayer. And uh, some would put that as part of the discourse, and some would put that separately, and it really doesn't matter which way you see it. (coughs) But I want you to see that where we're into now, we've just started into this farewell discourse. And I've got a few things I want to say about it before we start in. These chapters are full of some of the richest insights in the Bible. These chapters, this last bit of 13 and 14, 15, 16, and I think 17, reveal more of who God is and what he's doing in us and what he's doing in the world. Uh, A commentator I like very much, Raymond Brown, has written that the farewell discourse, and I quote, surpasses in nobility and majesty all other discourses of Jesus. It is it is it is incredibly powerful. You know, uh, it's a long time ago now. It's probably, uh, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago. I felt like the Lord said, I want you to, to spend time just meditating on this discourse. And I did for three and a half years. Three and a half years. I just kept going and going. And you'd think you'd just get tired of it. I thought I'd get tired of it. Instead, it just goes deeper and deeper. Um, So, um, the earlier discourses, because you know, it's filled with with him speaking and, uh, you know, addressing. But those earlier ones um, were spoken to crowds. Sometimes they were, like John 6, for example, that long one, you know, and I'm the bread of life and eat my flesh, drink my blood. And sometimes they were spoken to hostile crowds. But this final farewell discourse is him pouring out his heart on that last night to his own, those 11. Um, I've told you that John's Gospel is the most mystical of the four Gospels. I'm sure you've noticed I've said that to you several times over the months. And that's why we've been looking at the depth of meaning in his words. Because I, I, I think John is the best gateway in to seeing the scriptures, not just in the historical critical method, not just in that kind of two-dimensional, it, it just says what it says, but in the much more traditional understanding that it is multi-layered, and it's filled with metaphor, and, it, and it's filled with illusion. And, um, and I've, so we've taken you to John, we're going through John, because it is, it's so multi-level and multi-dimensional. So I said, John is the most mystical of the four Gospels. But now, we're coming to the most mystical chapters, the most mystical teaching of Christ that is in John. What John shares in the upper room, just hours before his arrest, transcends time and space. Even as we look at it over the coming weeks, we need to recognize there's an otherworldliness to Jesus' words. He's, <coughs> he's now, things are rapidly moving, right? That's why they call this the Passion Week. They're moving, and he is rapidly moving on his way to the Father. So physically, he's speaking to t- uh, 11 uh, close, dear friends, 11 men in an upper room during what we call the Last Supper. That's, literally, physically, what's happening. But spiritually, he is revealing heaven's perspective to them. In fact, I think he is speaking from heaven's eternal, infinite perspective. And I think that as he speaks to those 11, he's looking beyond those 11 to the multitude that can't be counted, who over the, the centuries and millennia to follow, Call themselves followers of Christ. So this is really, really multi-layered, um, and I would encourage you because it was, it was one of the, the rich journeys in my walk with the Lord. You know, it's coming up uh, forty-two years, and one of the very, very richest journeys was the time I spent meditating John 14, 15, 16 and then I did 17 after a while okay so I just want to encourage you there is gold that you will never get to the end of okay, well that's just to wet your whistle for the final discourse (laughs) now let's look at these first transitional verses, verse 31 when he was gone uh, Judas was gone, Jesus said Now, that word is just key, it's like a pivot point for the whole activity of the thing. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. (coughs) If God is glorified in Him, God will glorify the Son in Himself, and will glorify Him at once. Five glorified (laughs) in two verses. I want to put it in the New Living Translation, where we lose one of the glorifieds, but it, the meaning a little bit easier. As soon as Judas left the room, Jesus said, The time has come for the Son of Man to enter into His glory, and God will be glorified because of Him. And since God receives glory because of the Son, He will soon give glory to the Son. Okay? So Jesus uses glory five times. And what you see here immediately, this shift, is we've stepped right into an excited anticipation. He knew how uh, the soon coming events were going to reveal God's glory. And he'd been waiting for a while for this. If you go all the way back to John 12, 20 to 23, uh, 20 to 22 is remember, Philip comes and says, There's these Greek guys, and they want to meet you. Remember? And Jesus' response in verse 23 is, Ah, the hour has now come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And so he's been hanging on that for, I don't know how long, a couple of weeks probably. (coughs) Jesus is about to reveal the glory of the Father, of who he really is. And here's how he's going to reveal it. Through his suffering and death on the cross. Christ on the cross is... Is the glory of God? I'm going to say that again. Christ on the cross is the glory of God. We've talked before how, um, really, from the time of Constantine, early fourth century, there's been kind of this victorious warrior Jesus, and uh, and I, you, you, we all hear it. We hear it in worship songs nowadays, and so forth. And I'm not saying that he isn't. He's incredibly victorious. Something called Christos Victor, the victory of Christ over the principalities, power, sin, death. But his way of being victorious, his way of revealing the glory of God is to die on a cross without fighting back. It's amazing, isn't it? We've talked a lot about canonic love. So then, verse 33, he says, Little children... Yet a little while I am with you, you'll seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. <coughs> couple of points, I think mean, three points. Little children was a term of affection, okay, it was a common term of affection. It wasn't talking down to them. And Jesus knew that what he was about to say to them would be really difficult, even frightening. Because they would, they would have this fear of abandonment. And he wants the disciples to be sure, in the context of all that he's going to share, to be sure of his love and care for them. So I think that's one of the reasons he says little children. Secondly, this is an incredibly appropriate phrase for the setting. We're back to setting. What's the setting? The Passover meal. And I shared with you last week, this is the third Passover in John, remember? Chapter 2, chapter 6, and now here. And Passover meals were shared everywhere, not by big congregations, but by small groups. And the Passover meal, the group, it was patterned after family life. (coughs) It was the Father's role to explain the significance of what was happening in the meal. So, he was about to explain the significance of everything. So, I think that's another reason. Little children, it's very appropriate. Number three, he said, you know, I told the Jews earlier, where I'm going, you can't come. But if you look, what he actually told them in uh, chapter 7, verse 34, and we talked about this, if you've got a great memory, we talked about this a few months ago. He said, where I am, you cannot come. He did not say where I will be. He said, where I am. And uh, again, we see the multidimensional gospel of John that transcends time and space. That's why he could say in John 8, before Abraham was, I am. I am. Not I was. I am. So... A few minutes later, he says almost the same thing to Peter, uh, but he expands it slightly. He says, where I'm going, Peter, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. And there's great meaning in that. And and we come back to that in John 21. (coughs) Everybody still doing all right? All right. Now we come to these really, really well-known verses, 34 and 35. Excuse me. I give you a new commandment. Love one another. Just as I've loved you, you must also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. So he said to the disciples, where I'm going, you can't follow me now. But what he does is he gives them a command that will keep, if they keep it, it'll keep the spirit of Jesus active and alive among them. Many commentators, many, recognize these two verses as a covenant, a covenantal statement he's making to them. And uh, it's a holy covenant Made to, with the disciples, and again, by extension, because it transcends time. To all those in, uh, in, through history who will follow. <clears throat> so it's interesting how many times, I looked at so many different commentators, and, and again and again, the issue of covenant came up, and they said, this is the covenant moment. And it's interesting, because you'll remember in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, They don't have the foot washing, but they all have the Eucharist. They all have the the bread and the wine, right? And as he shares the wine, what's he say? This is the new covenant. He says this is a covenant moment, and I just thought it was very, very interesting that this is this is John's version of a new covenant. So (coughs) he says. A new command. So how is this a new command? Leviticus in three different places, Deuteronomy. uh, The Old Testament says to love your neighbor, to love one another. So how on earth is this a new command? Anybody else ever wonder that when you read that? Well, the words that he says are not new. But the mode or the means of doing this is radical. It's completely new. Because the key phrase there is, as I have loved you. This is the key. The life of Jesus is both the spiritual power and the pattern. Remember last week, verse 15, he said, for I have given you a pattern, literally, for example, your Bible probably says, I've given you an example or pattern that you should do just as I have done for you. For the first time in history, there's a supernatural enabling to love. We can lean into that, and we are enabled. <clears throat> We're going to get into this, certainly by chapter 16, about he, he sends the helper, the teacher, the counselor. <clears throat> but that's why it's new. Not the words... But there's a supernatural enabling and a pattern to follow. The scope, secondly, the scope and generosity of God's love couldn't be fully known. It was impossible for them to fully know the scope of His love until what? Until the cross, right? Until the Father had given His Son. And this is also what makes the commandment brand new because nothing like that has ever happened and will ever happen again. So now there's a supernatural source, a supernatural dimension to loving one another, and there's a pattern to follow. So I want to talk about this pattern, because I find (coughs) at one level it encourages me, and at another level it convicts me. You ever get that, where you're both encouraged and convicted? He says, as I have loved you. As I said, that's the key. So my question is this. How did he love them? And by extension, how did he love us? How did he love them? What is the pattern that disciples witnessed and lived in, lived it for three plus years? Number one, they lived in communion. They lived together. They shared their life together. Um, The early church held on to this for a long time. They lived in communion. You can read about it in in Acts 2 and Acts 4. Um, Right now, some of you have been to India with me. Uh, I'm seeing a variation on this, where uh, sometimes they're literally living together in one house, but if not, they practically are. They're, They're... the house together all the time um, my friends Anu and Randeep um, they cook 20 extra meals a day because they found that's the average number of people that come so the, the, as I have loved you he loved them by living in communion with them he lived the most inclusive life ever Secondly, they not only lived close, but they lived a shared life. You can read about it again in Acts 2 and 4. They shared their possessions. They shared their finances. They shared their time. What I also witness, where the church is exploding, guess what? They're sharing possessions, finances, and time. Isn't that interesting? It is so antithetical to our western lifestyle thirdly he taught them to serve one another remember last week i i talked to you about uh, mark 10 42 to 45 you know in the world they lorded over one another this shall not be so with you and uh, he said you serve one another whoever seeks the greatest servant of all jesus demonstrated a corporate life of love and care he was just taking care of them How did he love us? He says, love as I loved you. This is the tangible thing. It isn't a feeling. It isn't a feeling at all. It's choice. And the fourth thing that seems obvious to me, how he loved them, he loved them with a lifestyle of forgiveness. He always forgave. And he always challenged them. Lord, how many times do I got to forgive that chump? Seven times? No, no, no. 70 times (laughs) 7. I once saw a painting. I was in Russia uh, the week the Soviet Union was dissolved, and I got to meet with a bunch of artists, Christian artists, who had been for many years in the gulags and had just been released. And I got to go to a small exhibit, because they hadn't been out long enough to have a lot of paintings, and meet with them. And there were some beautiful paintings. And then there was this one, it was kind of purple, and it was seven, seven, seven. seven, seven. I thought, what's that? And then I suddenly counted. It was seventy-sevens. And it was very powerful. Wow. Never forget that. That was in 91. Uh, um, so, how have we managed to get around these things? I've said many times. It's much easier to believe in who Jesus is than believe in what he said. If believe means follow and cling to. So, how do we get around this as I have loved you? Inclusively, communally, sharing. How do we get around it? Well, I think we get around it the same way as the teacher of the law in Luke 10. When he said, love your neighbor. And he says, yeah, but who's my neighbor? Remember? Mm -hmm. Which got us the Good Samaritan. What we've done is we've defined, we've redefined this one another. I'm going to say it. I'm going to go all the way back here. Um, Come on, where is it? Okay. Uh, Just as I've loved you, you must also love one another. Hmm. For this, all people know you're my disciples. So how did we get around that? We've redefined one another to make it smaller. It means to people who are like us. That's the one another. To people who reinforce our preferences, our assumptions, our worldview. I, and maybe we, but I speak for me, I have been selective in my hearing and my obeying the words of God the Son. And that creates this Dynamic tension in me. I read the scriptures and I see what he says and then I'm immediately confronted with the tension of the choices I make. Yeah. And I'm confronted with how unradical my life is, my following of him. Yeah. Okay, we're on a home stretch. Um, verse 36 to 38 which I think I forgot to write down. Um, I did. So I'll have to actually open a Bible. That'll make some of my friends less nervous. So I, I do own a Bible. <laughs> uh, verse 36 to 38. Lord Simon Peter said to Jesus, Where are you going? And uh, Jesus answered, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me. Now, but you will follow later. I mentioned that earlier. Lord, Peter uh, asked, Why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. That famous episode. Jesus replied, Will you lay down your life for me? I assure you a rooster will not crow until you've denied me three times. Oh, by the way, I realized I just skipped over something. I skipped over verse 35 by mistake. I was reading one of the church fathers yesterday and a little bit today, John Christostom. He was uh, the late 300s into the early 400s. And the church, this was now after Constantine, had made um, being a Christian, instead of it being a dangerous thing, it became the state religion. I think most of you know that history. And so now, (coughs) only 80 years later, as I'm reading his, he's got a big thick thing of sermons called homilies on John. I'm reading him challenging the church on this passage about loving one another. And he really lets him have it. He says, the heathen, by that he means non-Christians, the heathen have given up on their own Deities, you know, which is mainly the, the pantheon of, of Greek and Roman gods. And they they are happy with the gospel, but they cannot embrace it because of what they see in the church. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting? That was only eighty years after Constantine. Mm-hmm. And so they will know our love. They will know us by our love, right? You know, we could all, we're not even going to go down that road. Again, this week I have a, a, a man I've, I've mentored for a long time. He just got creamed, blindsided by the church in the most un like way. And I've probably already said too much. But, but, so we could all tell stories and it won't help us to. It will not draw our hearts closer to Jesus. It'll just get us agitated about the failings of people. So I forgot to say something, but the good news is, he says, if you will love as I have loved you, if you will love this way, this of, of communion, of, of sharing everything, of forgiving and caring for one another, then they'll know you're my disciples. And the, the Lord adds daily to that. You know, we see it in Acts, we see it in India, I see it in in, uh, Uganda. There's an attraction because by loving one another, we have the presence and power of Christ. We're carrying on, He's with us in the midst of that. But when we don't love one another, when we succumb to the things, that thing that slowly pulls us away from somebody else, we do not have the power and presence of Christ. And we're left with religion. Paul, Paul said, you know, the form without the power. So, <coughs> anyway, that's what I think about verse 35 off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. So, in this exchange with Peter, we see the great danger. In fact, peril is not too strong a word in not seeing ourselves rightly. Peter, in fact, in, in Matthew, he says, you can count on me. Those other guys I don't know about, but you can count on me. It is so dangerous. Uh, Romans 13.3, Paul says, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. You know, some people are, are too timid and too frightened, but, but many of us are overconfident, especially about our own righteousness. So many times in the scripture, the phrase, the fear of the Lord is there, all over the place. I was reading all about the fear of the Lord this morning, separate from this. This kind of was the last thing I wrote this afternoon, and came out of some of what I was just in my morning reading. But the fear of the Lord, um, it is about beholding and contemplating His majesty. Going back to what Raymond Brown said, these passages are going to give us the nobility and the majesty of Christ as we look at these chapters coming up. But the fear of the Lord is about beholding and contemplating His majesty, His beauty, His magnificence. This is why I am convinced that that in worship, where we need to go in worship is this place of of worship, of adoration, of being absolutely beholding Him, not beholding ourselves how He affects us, right? But just Him. When I I get to go to a lot of churches in a lot of countries, and every now and then I'll hit a church, their worship is so Christ-centered. So when we behold His beauty, 2 Corinthians 3 tells us that we are changed from glory to glory. Verse 18. Beholding him changes changes us. And that's tied right in with the fear of the Lord. To see his greatness <clears throat> is to see our weakness, our vulnerability. And if we don't, we're in a dangerous, dangerous place. I I'm old enough now. On the inside, I'm 25, but but chronologically, and I've been in ministry for Most of my adult life. And the train wrecks. And the sadness that I have felt. It has brought me to tears many times. Probably some of you too. Where people that I I loved. That I cared about. Or people that I just knew about. They fell into this thing that Peter fell into. And they thought they were stronger than they were. That will never happen to me. I'm fine. I can handle it. Whatever it may be, it's our universal human weakness. Mm-hmm. So that's why we must we must behold him. That's why the fear of the Lord is so important and uh, to see his greatness is to see our weakness and our vulnerability, our great need for him and his empowering presence, which is one of my favorite definitions for grace. So I'm going to finish a little different this this time. I, in my own personal morning time besides reading the scriptures I, I usually read um, a, a chapter or a couple of pages from one of the uh, contemplatives often the historic contemplatives through church history and uh, and right now I'm near the end of uh, reading um, Julian of Norwich she is a 14th century English woman Um, a mystic, a contemplative Uh, she was a contemporary of Chaucer's actually, and she is the first English woman whose writings were ever published anyway, I'm just going to share and understand this is in pretty modern language, but it's still a little bit of a, you know, Renaissance thinking but in light of us recognizing his magnificence, and the more we recognize that, the more we see our own great need because we can be like Peter and say we got it covered, we can be like Judas, and gradually our hearts start to harden towards someone. So, let me finish by reading a little bit of Julian of Norwich. Who did wonderful, wonderful stuff. But this kind of trembling and fear will cause no suffering. It befits the worth and might of God to be regarded in this way by those he created fearfully trembling and quaking with humble joy marveling at the greatness of God the maker and at the littleness of all that is made for to contemplate this makes such makes each created being marvelously meek and subdued and God is as good as he is great and it uh, is as, mu- it as much benefits his goodness to be loved as it befits his greatness to be feared. For this reverent fear is the fair courtesy that is shown before God's face in heaven. And by as much as he shall then be known and loved beyond what he is now, so he will be feared beyond what he is now. Isn't that terrific?
0: That concludes this episode of the Impact Nations podcast. If you've got any questions, send them to podcast at impactnations.com and we'll be sure to discuss them during our next Q&A session with Steve. And please prayerfully consider this journey to India in February. I'll be there and I think you should be too. Visit impactnations.com slash India for all the details. Thanks. Have a great week.